0: and welcome to the Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Tony Armstrong, and this podcast is all about celebrating Indigenous art and design in all of its shapes and forms. This podcast also marks the opening of Watamara, NGV's new exhibition. Watamara means many mobs in the Wurundjeri Wurrung language and, as the title says, the exhibition showcases the diversity of First Nations art and design with incredible works from emerging and senior artists from all around the country. Like me, you may be wondering, what exactly is Indigenous art? Is it more than traditional dot paintings? And how much has it developed over the years into the contemporary practices of today? Let's find out. Sophie Gerard is NGV's curator of Australian and First Nations art. She has British, German and Wiradjuri heritage and was born on Dharawal country and now lives in Nam. Sophie, good morning to you. Welcome.
1: Hello, Tony. Nice to be here.
0: It's a thrill to have you here too. Um, I'm so excited. I get to speak with Amrita Happy soon. Could you please tell me a little bit about her?
1: Yes, so Amrita is a fantastic artist that we have in the NGV collection. She is an award-winning choreographer, dancer and artist from Bunjilung and Napui territories in Australia and Aotearoa. Her practice takes the body as a starting point where she develops these narratives that surround authenticity, tradition, language and culture and she often interrogates um, the ongoing effects of colonisation in her work.
0: I mean, there's so much to unpack there um, Mm. uh, across so many different disciplines. Um, But specifically, could you tell me about her work, which is in the upcoming Wanamara exhibition?
1: Mm. So the work is called Scripture for a Smokescreen, Episode 1, Dolphin House. And we are so excited to be able to present this in the inaugural hang. It's being displayed on a huge projection wall in a very dark room. So it's incredibly immersive and intimate. And in the performance piece, Amrita is responding to a 1960s NASA-funded experiment that took place in the United States where they took this dolphin who was called Peter, who was considered particularly intelligent, um, and the hope was that they could teach Peter human language that consists of symbols and words. Um, and then they were hopeful that they could translate this skill from Peter to being able to teach extraterrestrials human language in the future. Um, so Peter went, um, underwent all of these different tests as part of this experiment and one aspect to it was the self-awareness test. And that was when he was put into this isolation tank and a mirror was lowered into the tank and they tragically carved symbols onto Peter's back um, to see if he could recognise himself in the mirror and see the symbols on his back. So he was sort of contorting and doing backflips. And this kind of proved to the scientists that he had this self-awareness. And these tests sort of were ongoing, you know, there was all different elements to it. They um, brought in another dolphin at one point to see if Peter's self-awareness could translate Mm -hmm. onto the other dolphin. Um, And they ended up having sex in front of the mirror. And I think those tapes were referred to as dolphin porn in the 60s by scientists So it's really heavy and Amrita is asking really fundamental questions about language in this work, you know, questions around what do we do when we don't speak the same language as somebody, how do we treat others when we don't understand them and then kind of making us put ourselves into Peter's position of being the only person in a room who doesn't speak a language. So throughout the whole piece Amrita is saying this posthumous letter that she's written to Peter But the work is actually just so incredibly exciting because it is just changing the perception that audiences have on contemporary First Nations art in this country and particularly to an international audience. You know, we have conversations all the time with um, international audiences and they're so excited about this work because, you know, this is an Indigenous woman artist who is talking about scientists and Mm. science and NASA NASA funded. Like totally, it's so exciting and... It's just really um, showing how wonderful and exciting Indigenous art is in Australia today and actually that kind of translates to Watermara as a whole because we've got, you know, painting and weaving whose traditions go back tens of thousands of years but we've also got neon lights and and things like Amrita's work. Totally, (laughs) we've got NASA. So it's just like... It's just showing the scope of Aboriginal and First Nations art in this country. It's so wonderful.
0: Well, yeah, because I was I was watching it and I was thinking, wow, how do you get from Peter to what to what we see and what is and what is presented? Totally.
1: Um, but it's also like, you know, the the issues around surveillance and being constantly watched. Like that is these topics are, yes, they we can talk about them through the lens of post-colonialism and colonialism in this country, but it's just such a humanity question as well, this issue of surveillance. I'm excited for you that you get to hear her talking about this.
0: Yeah, well, it's always good when you're able to go straight to the source. Sophie, thank you so much for giving us a bit of an insight into the conversation I'm about to have and um, thanks for coming on.
1: Enjoy. Thank you.
0: Hey, and I just watched Dolphin House. I think it is an amazing piece of work. Can you tell me how that came about? Because we're talking NASA, we're talking dolphins, we're talking speaking with extraterrestrial beings. It is incredible.
2: (laughs) So um, I guess like I was interested in the moment about this question of like intelligence and who gets to be smart and who decides. And then... I knew of this story that somebody had told me once and they were like, oh, well, you know, NASA actually had a dolphin house built where people lived with dolphins and they were trying to learn how to speak to aliens. And I was like, no, they didn't. <laughs> and then They were like, yes, they did. And then I looked into it further. It was a real story. And not only that, the guy who ran it, John C. Lilly, he had been hanging out with one of the producers of Flipper and had gotten really into LSD and was like, yeah, LSD, neuroscientists, the brain really opens up something. And then they decided to inject the dolphins with LSD. It's wild. It's wild. And they were like, yep, that makes for like a good research project. And then it was funny as well because someone was like, oh, you know, and an arts funding gets um questioned in this country. <laughs> It was like the story of that that I found really interesting. In a way, it kind of answered all of these other questions I had about language. Why does language fail? What happens when you erase language? Why did Esperanto not work? Could there be a universal language? Not all of those have been answered completely, but when I was making it, I had a lot of questions around language, especially being a dancer and learning that as a language as well. So, yes, that's kind of what led me into the research of the project.
0: (laughs) It was amazing to watch um, because it is it is a film that answers this maybe question you've got in your own head about all of those things you've just mentioned. How do you go about deciding how to express yourself in response to that?
2: Well, in this case, I knew that it was going to be a film work. Like It was put to me as like, hey, make a video. And the original context that it was in was around um, black art and film and stories so i was like okay what am i interested in and so i first was thinking about this like mapping it out and going scene by scene i was like okay i want it to feel like i'm walking onto a film set but then i'm in this kind of limitless space and so i had all these scenes i was like i knew i wanted an underwater scene and i also knew that i wanted to be have a scene that seemed quite intimate and i was like where's a really intimate space oh my car or a car we were are having these conversations with someone in, in close proximity, but it's also quite yeah. mundane. And so the scenes came together first and the images came together first. And I also, I guess, because I knew I, I had it in my mind, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to put myself in this and I'm probably not going to be able to hire a dolphin. So we'll just, we'll use a balloon. <laughs> and So the scenes came together first and then I edited it and I knew I wanted two voices in the project. Like I, well, there's, I guess there's like three sound qualities to it. There's the soundtrack. There's my voice. And then I wanted this other voice um, against my own that, or with my own, I should say that was saying the exactly the same thing as me, but that it would sound different tonally. And I found, uh, a voice actor online who was like, Aussie male voice. And I was like, perfect, that's exactly, that's that's what I'm looking for. And it was interesting to hear the contrast between our two voices, especially when I'm looking at the scene uh, because we're saying exactly the same thing but it can be received differently. The hesitation in my own intonation could be read as vulnerability or could be read as like, um, like, I don't know, me being like hesitating. Thoughtfulness. Thoughtfulness, hesitation, Uh, the kind of tone in his voice could be read as certainty or authority. And I knew I wanted that kind of playing over the top of these uh, kind of bizarre images. And then when I was thinking about the script, I was like, how am I going to do this? Because if I just talk in facts, it's not a documentary. I'm, I'm dancing about a dolphin. And then I was like, Oh, a letter. Like their letters have this way of being incredibly exposing and personal. And when you're writing a letter, you're writing it to the person that you're writing it to, but you're, I guess you're also kind of writing it to yourself. And I, so it started as this letter to Peter with all these questions. And I guess there's like a, a deceit in it where it's like, I'm asking these questions knowing I'm not going to get a response, but as I'm asking them, I'm able to like slip in these facts about this dolphin that I've gotten to know and, and where it kind of bridges into, I guess, my interest in it. And so that's how it kind of came together.
0: Yeah. I love, I love the start of it where you almost break the fourth wall uh, talking about, you know, writing a letter to someone who's who's passed a posthumous letter i found that both really funny and really really beautiful was the letter writing bit the hardest bit to get the balance between like uh, okay how much can i can i use what i'm doing here in text or or you know in the in 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 the vocab to then give me the leeway to sneak in those facts that makes it seem not so, you know, fact, 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 boring, boring, you, you know, like, like, like to keep it alive. Uh, yeah,
2: yeah. Well, I didn't, I didn't actually like write the letter. What I did was was that I, I read all of this stuff that had been on my mind for ages, and I was like, I edited the video, and then I just talked to it over the top of it and recorded it that way because I was like if I'm seeing what I've already put together in an image then it's it's easier for me to respond to and um, when I was doing it I was I felt like a shortcut because I'd been I'd written all of these drafts and I was like okay I'm going to read exactly this and then I was like oh this isn't working anymore like I'm going to have to chop it all up and I was like oh if I just watch what I've done then I already know it in my the back of my mind what I was trying to say there. And I'm not gonna overcomplicate it by over-explaining what a scene is or and the the person who did the sound general jenach every time I went a bit too um into my like fact base he was like oh you should maybe put a bit more of your own thought in that that's what makes it interesting like we know that you're riding to this dolphin and we've got some facts, so what do you think about it? And I was like, oh, well, you know, I, I was reading this or I'm interested in this. And there was also this orangutan that, you know, the Queen met yeah. one time and I was like, then it became more of a conversation with, uh, yeah, I guess like with Peter and and me and also with an audience as well. So because I think so often it's like we think that we have to, say everything in order to be heard clearly, but there's so much more usually going on. And sometimes you don't have the words and sometimes we actually have way more than words that we need to express. So yeah, that that became apparent to me as well when I was making the work.
0: Interesting point you made there about the drafts. Like, like you write something and then you look back on your draft and you go, oh, I don't feel like that anymore. How much is your relationship with the work changed from go to woe
2: um I think like leading up to the shoot I was like excited about it and then after shooting it I was like oh my god we've got hours of this and it's a mess it doesn't make any sense (laughs) and then and then after it was finished with after it was finished with just my voice there was the thought that Like when I was talking to people that I trusted, they're like, just leave it with your voice. You don't need another voice in there. Stop over." And I was like, no, I need, let me just try it. And then I think because I'm watching it on like a small screen, I was like, oh, yep, okay, it's done, it's good, and then showing it to people on Vimeo. And then I think it changed again seeing it in the space because there was something about video like watching moving image work and video work where i was like okay it's not cinema necessarily there's something about it that's repetitive or there's something about it that's like bite sized or something about it's long but it's you go into like a cinema space and you feel kind of enveloped in it and so my relationship changed with it again even though you know it's always a bit awkward being in a room where you're on the screen watching your own body going doing things where you're yeah. like bah but also it it um yeah i i watched it again recently cuz i was showing some students and i liked it again but after i'd first finished the edit and sent it off i was like okay well and then there's also the other thing of like the nicest thing where it becomes real again when you have an audience of people and they're like i totally got it that this is about indigenous language And also like desire. And I was like, yeah, yeah, it is. Or they were like, I saw this in it. And so then it changes your relationship to it again. And and even people who were like, yeah, I liked it. Didn't really get it. Or my children loved it. Leave the room. And so you kind of, yeah, it endears me to it again.
0: How does it make you feel when you put out pieces of work that go so far outside what is, you know, lazily considered black art and how important do you think it is to continue to push these modern contemporary pieces of art and align them with the black space? You know, we're talking, again, NASA, aliens, experiments, science, you know, like. What's blacker than that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are the first scientists, but it's not what people would instantly connect with in terms of a black piece of art.
2: Yeah, it's such, a, it's such a good question, especially for me, for myself, when people are like, okay, so you study dance, so you do dance, so you teach dance, so you're an Indigenous dance, So have you been in Bangarra? Oh, no, wait, you're in a gallery, so do you do painting? Box, box, box. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I think it's important that we're able to have these different like contemporary expressions, but then I also think it's something that's been done for a really long long time, and especially within Indigenous culture, like even thinking about Indigenous languages and how you're losing this world or this universe that's created by language. But then it's kind of being built up again in other ways, because as you understand the world through the people in it, then it's growing and changing. So it would seem um, completely droll and limited to think that Black art would only be one thing, when it's been constantly um, uh, a matter of like hybridity and also interest. And I'm always like ambivalent to say the word innovation because I feel like it has in this day and age, like real like tech entrepreneur vibes. But I think that if we look at this history, then it, it's been a long, long line of people doing all of these things. Uh, well, doing a lot of things at the same time underneath like the pursuit of interest, uh, resilience. And so, I mean, I still get asked those questions when it's like, well, it's not, I guess it's not like traditional art. And I'm like, well, what? what is, <laughs> what is? <laughs> traditional art? And who made that decision? And I mean, it doesn't mean I don't have respect for like some of our really like talented and I guess more traditional artists, but even then in, in talking about them, we're seeing techniques that I guess if we're comparing it to, Probably, and we are comparing it to like the Western Canada of art, they weren't necessarily painting on on bark or there was that, you know, it's like you used what you can to make what you want and what you will with the people around you. And so, yeah, but I mean there is still like, you know, and then you explain it to your family, you're like, Oh, I made this film about dolphins and um <laughs> and they're like, Oh yeah, so when will I actually get to see you dance? I'm like, oh, at the NGV. They're like, so you will be doing a performance at the NGV. I'm like, it's in a video. They're like, right, right. But um, (laughs) that's probably, they're probably my toughest uh, critics in terms of categorization.
0: (laughs) Oh, goodness. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm glad glad you've got that lens on it. Um, Back to Peter. I'm interested as to how you figured out how you would connect the story of Peter the dolphin with that post-colonial experience that I guess we kind of sort of touched on then as who gets to decide what's what and who decides who's intelligent, who makes those decisions. How were you able to first off get that idea in your mind and then get it from out of your mind onto the screen in this case?
2: Yeah, I guess, like, there's not necessarily, like, a straight line in this cautionary tale because I'm not saying necessarily, like, you know, and Aboriginal like people are like Peter and, you know, it's it, <laughs> it's not like that at all. But there is this idea, I guess, of, like, that that cautionary tale, like, yeah, I guess, like, what, what's deemed intelligent, what are the metrics for intelligence, but then also this idea of, like, what happens when language fails and how do you get it across? And I feel like between me asking Peter questions and then the absurdity of the tale lands somewhere in this idea of like what happens when you're under under surveillance. I mean, I was thinking about this idea of my family learning to sing hymns and how to sing them correctly and how it changed the intonation of their voice and also how like some of these hymns and these like religious ideas then like peter into some of the origin stories that have been told. And so then I was thinking about Peter and this like dolphin that's underneath this immense surveillance and I guess in some ways it's like all the videos of him, he's like hanging out with Margaret Lovett who is his keeper and having this really great time and then how how we're reflecting on those stories. So it's a crazy story. And then it's also this story about captivity. And then it's also this story about research and and being very forward thinking. And in all of it, the absurdity of this story speaks to the absurdity of the idea of the colonial project. And that was the tie-in that I could find. They were like, yeah, 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 we'll get these dolphins and we'll live with them and then we'll inject them with LSD. It's like the same way as saying like, oh, yeah, 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 we'll go over there and we won't really offer them anything and then we'll have this genocide and then this will happen and then it's like how that's then viewed in history. And then they're like, oh, yeah, and they'll all think the same and vote the same and be the same. They'll love
0: it. Yeah, They'll love
2: (laughs) it, you know. They're they're going to love everything that we are giving them and then testing them with. And, I mean, I'll also – you know, to be honest, like I set out on this story out of interest because I felt connected to it and to find it was like a process of reflection and thinking about it and watching the work and, and drawing it together. I also think that that becomes abundantly clear as you watch the work, but it's always nice to talk about it and to reflect on how I got there because it's it wasn't that straightforward. That's kind of – I hope that answers your no, question.
0: No, no, it does. It really does because – um you know there are there are certain lenses on which you look at it through where you go oh far out that is actually the same thing you know but it but it but it does take a level of priming i i suppose to get there you know um and that and that comes from the way you display things the way you present them all that kind of stuff it primes it primes you to get to a spot where you go okay well yeah now i see how that apple actually equals that orange over there but yeah it can't have been easy, and I would have loved to have been there for you pitching that to the curator. I just, I swear it's good, trust me. Um, and in that, you do challenge these ideas of Western knowledge systems being like the panacea. One of the things that really annoys me is this idea that the only formal level of education is like university, you know. That's the only one that's respected, whereas in Blackfellow culture, everything was peer-reviewed. Just because it wasn't on a piece of paper doesn't mean it's not peer-reviewed. From a language perspective, how does that topic tend to inform your work, not just not just this piece of work, but in general?
2: Well, I think that there was something about dance where I was like, okay, there's this physical language that I'm learning in different places from people and I'm learning it by watching them as much as, learning it in action and i found it really easy to to focus on it to be to to like absorb from them there was like a mimetic feeling where i was like okay this is this works for me and i think as well there was something i don't know some deranged idea i had as a kid where i was like oh if my body can speak then i won't have to you know i won't be asked to do this and that's just not true And I don't know where I I necessarily got that idea from. Later on in life, I realized the importance of how this physical language then informs how I'm thinking about things, how I will relate to things, how I would present myself to somebody, how I would be ambivalent about things. And it also makes you good at watching dance is so much about a witness, having somebody watch you as much as it is about watching other people. So it made me witness what came or watch what came to action and what physical attributes contributed to a a bigger story and how it felt like I was learning this like secret communication method that was also incredibly transparent and clear. So that came to the fore. And then I remember learning about language and linguistics and learning a bit of and Mm. linking that to like a, a physical knowledge. And then doing this thing in my head where I was like, I've learned this language through song and dance. And I'm doing that thing where I'm like asking for something and then thinking it in my mind first and then thinking in English and then doing the translation. And I was like, why am I doing that? I can just remember it with my body for what it is rather than doing the jump through the loops. And then there was also this interesting fact that I learned as a, as a teenager that someone was talking about words and class and how your accent informs people will know where you're from. And I was like, well, how could they? And then I was like, you know, mostly I was born in Townsville and then I was going to school in Sydney and I noticed that my accent would change when I was up in Townsville.
0: You mode switched. <laughs> yeah,
2: mode switched. I remember feeling kind of ashamed about it. And then someone said to me, do you know who changes language the most? And I said, who? They said teenage girls in metro areas because they have the capacity to switch and they're inventing words and so often language will reduce them or shut them out and so they'll have to invent shorthand or to, to, to communicate with each other or to protect themselves. And I was like, wow, cool. So between dance and learning language and thinking about language, I was like, oh, there's this way to develop a, short, a shorthand to understand things culturally for myself Um, in the different worlds that I'm in. And further to that, make my own worlds to exist in, to share with other people. So, and then there's pressure studying in the States and hearing your accent again and yeah, just hearing yourself in different situations and what that signals. And I think class was like a really, is like a really big one to, to think about in terms of how you speak, what class you are. I mean, I'm in the UK at the moment and it is abundantly clear, but there's something about going to Townsville and switching that I'm happy I have the twang in my mouth.
0: (laughs) Oh, don't worry. I've Yeah, I've grown up in the country as well. It's so funny. The second I get out there, my friend's like, is this Tony or, you know, country Tony? And I'm like, mate. I can, I, can, I can flip with the best of them. Who cares? But um, you did just say you're in the UK, so I'm so conscious of the time, Amrita. Um, thank you so much, though, for telling us all about Dolphin House, your practice, your work, and giving us an insight into just how it comes about. I can't wait for everyone to see it at Watamara as well.
2: Thank you. Lovely speaking to you.
0: I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people as the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast takes place. I pay my respects to their elders past and present and to Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening. Thanks for joining me today to learn more about Indigenous art. Make sure that you get down to the Ian Potter Centre in GV Australia to see the Watamurra exhibition and the NGV's permanent collection of Australian and Indigenous art and design. The exhibition and the collection are completely free and open all year round. See you there.